Welcome to a new episode of Full Stack Cast. In this podcast, we are going to take a closer look at the humans behind Full Stack Fest, our ever-growing roster of amazing speakers. Their talks inspire us by widening our perspective and deepening our knowledge. But behind each one's well-known technical expertise, there's an often lesser-known, well-rounded human with a wide range of interests and a unique life path. Fullstack Fest is an inspiring conference about software. It's happening in the first week of September in Barcelona, and it's organized by Codegram, who also produce and sponsor this podcast. I'm your host, Chus, and today's guest is Lee Byron. Lee has previously spoken at our event about immutable user interfaces, and this year he's going to be giving an inspiring keynote. His work has shaped the way we build user interfaces for the web, most notably GraphQL, but also helping bring immutability to a wider audience. Hi, Lee. Welcome to the podcast. Um, it's an honor having you here. My pleasure. Last time I saw you was, um, I think, 2016? Yeah, it's been some time. Yeah, it's been a long time. I don't know why I felt it was like maybe one one or two years ago. Time flies. And uh, you've also moved on onto a new new venture, <laughs> Robinhood, which I find really interesting because it's something I actually would like to to use. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. That's cool. I think we need to talk about that later. But I, I like to start with what a lot of people wonder is that when they see someone like you, it's like, wow, you know, they've made like this amazing library, Immutable JS. They've started GraphQL. They they do all these things. And how did they start? Like, can I become a Lee Byron? Basically, that's what people ask. Oh yeah, absolutely they can. Yeah, I guess what everyone's wondering is your background, how you how you got into programming, how you got started and how all these things caught your interest in the first place. So, I have a really weird path into all of this. I mean, I guess I've been programming for for a long time, but I never really thought of myself as a programmer until actually pretty recently. I can remember making web pages. Like, do you remember GeoCities? I made I made web pages on GeoCities. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, like <laughs> I think I have a, there's, I'm sure there's a a Pokemon fan site out there that I made 20 years ago or something (laughs) like that. But but as soon as I figured out that you could make something with a computer, then I I just wanted to make things. And even before I realized that you could make something on a computer, I just wanted to make things period. So that, that's kind of me in a nutshell. I'm just always curious. I want to see, I want to understand how things work. I'm always taking things apart, putting them back together again, always trying to learn new things. And uh, with computer is no different. But, you know, I have no training in, in programming or anything like that. Uh, my, my background is in design. I went to school for product design and industrial design, um, literally making objects and furniture and, and things like that. Wow, that's quite surprising. And of course, I was, I was the weird kid in class who everybody else was in the wood shop making stuff. And I was um, on my computer trying to figure out how 3D printing worked or um, doing some weird data visualization, or I, I was always just kind of pushing the edges. And luckily, um, my professors in school let me get away with more than I probably should have been allowed to get away with. But uh, that's kind of always my, my thing is just, I'm just always looking for the interesting intersections between stuff that I think is interesting. Um, and I almost always find something kind of cool along those, along those lines. And then, you know, I think a lot of I credit luck with my my career path so far quite a lot. Just being in the right time, right place at the right time with the the right set of skills. And and that's been true sort of a couple of times. When I was in school for design, I, I got really interested in data visualization. 
And um, have you ever used processing? Uh, I've tried. Um, or like P5JS? Um, I've tried something. I think it's a wrapper for processing. It's called Quill in ClojureScript, but I've used it for like. Oh, that's cool. Hours. I didn't even realize that, so, <laughs> that there was a ClojureScript wrapper. That, that's awesome. Uh, well, the, the guy who created, pro- or one of the, there's two people who created processing, uh, went to the same college as me, but uh, about a, a decade earlier. Wow. And he was at my school for one semester as a, as a guest professor. And I had tinkered with processing in the course of trying to do some, some random side project. And I thought it was fun, but I wanted to learn more. And I took his class and um, I, I really kind of fell in love with data visualization mm. and just made a bunch of kind of weird stuff data visualization wise, published some of that stuff online and ultimately caught the attention of one of the editors of the, of the New York Times. And that actually ended up being my first job out of, out of school was a part of the graphics team at the New York Times. Wow. What year was that? That was 2008. I'm not aware how journalism has evolved exactly, but I realized recently it's much more common to have a data visualization team or at least specialists that can do that. But I don't know if at that time it was normal. I think it was definitely pretty unique. There was only a few places and really they might have one or two people who were doing data visualization. Um, or actually, I, I shouldn't necessarily say that because there was a lot of, of print graphic data visualization, and that goes back decades. Yeah, I guess they have. Newspapers making really interesting print work um, data visualization. But a lot of that stuff is manually built, right? So you would kind of do your research, and then you would, uh, you know, these days open Illustrator or InDesign or something like that and make what you want to make. But even before that, you, know, you were setting up graphics on literally on the table you're, yeah. you're putting all the sheets sheets together so certainly that part of the industry has a deep history uh, but the digital element was pretty new i think i was you know one of one of the first in there and it was a lot of fun i mean 2008 was an election it was the olympics um, there was a lot of really interesting stuff to to do data visualization around mm. um, and then that some of that data visualization work was seen by the um, the head of data science at Facebook. And at that time, Facebook was a, a small company. It was smaller than MySpace, if you remember. Yeah, it was very, very... MySpace versus Facebook thing yeah. back, <laughs> back in the day when it's a whole different time. Um, and, you know, I, I wasn't so sure about Facebook at the time, to be honest, but because um, it was a small company. And, uh, but I was convinced to go, go out and meet them and was glad that I did. I was really, really impressed. And, uh, Sort of the original idea was that I would help design graphics for their data science team to help tell the stories of interesting things that were going on. And I did a little bit of that, but in practice, there was only so much for me to do. And I started picking up odd jobs from the design team and then ultimately joined the design team full time. Hmm. So I was a designer at Facebook for a long time. And then I ended up being the designer for mobile, sort of before the mobile explosion happened. And I think that was another sort of one of these examples of right place, right time. Yeah, um, It was right when, when touch phones were exploding. And I, I kind of watched from the front lines this whole transition from, you know, a, a smartphone being your secondary screen. And the, we really were treating it in, in those early years as when you were away from your computer, you could use your touch phone as like an extension of that experience mm-hmm. for a brief time before you got back to your computer again. Uh, but of course, now everybody just uses their phone. And yeah. In fact, there's way more people with phones than there are people with laptops or computers. 
Um, so I, I was a designer for mobile. And um, during this transition to, to touch phones, uh, I was the mobile team had this big shift from flip phones and very small screen phones to these bigger phones. And I was helping them not just design it, but also sort of build the front end. Um, had a little bit of developer experience from doing data viz stuff. Uh, and found out that I actually kind of knew more than I realized. Um, I had really bad imposter syndrome at Facebook. Hmm. I, I thought, you know, there's no way someone like me belonged there. And, uh, and I really had no idea what I was doing when it came to engineering, when it was around all these people who went to, you know, MIT and Stanford. And uh, I didn't even have a degree, let alone. Yeah, it must be really intimidating, actually. Yeah, it really was. Uh, but, you know, they, everyone in there was super nice. and. Um, I got both great mentorship from the people around me and people were just sort of, you know, pointing out the things that I was actually doing well. And uh, that was really helpful just to hear that uh, my, my instincts were right. Um, so I, I actually ended up building a team around front-end engineering for mobile. And um, that was sort of my first real deep dive into the actual developer work. Um, and that was right around the really early years of React. Um, so I was got to help some of the early contributions to React. And uh, this was also sort of around when GraphQL was uh, in its infancy. Um, and, uh, you know, as part of building React, we open source React. And the first year of that was a little bit rough. But um, after that, it was very clear that it had been the right thing to open source it. And it was a lot of fun. And so we got really into open sourcing stuff. And I, I just really fell in love with that, especially coming from the processing community, which was you know, it felt like open source before the GitHub days, there mm. was a forum, right? And you would share zip files. Um, and so I, it was really exciting to sort of get back to that, but with new and improved tools. Uh, and that's where a lot of my uh, open source um, maintenance and mentorship stuff comes from. And uh, a lot of my work there as well. Yeah. So sort of a, a winding path through it all, but, um, you know, really happy to have had all the experiences that I've had. That's really exciting because, of course, it's really hard to see when you're there. When you open source React and when you started getting involved with open source, maybe you didn't think that all this stuff would change the, you know, the way people build things. You know? Oh, totally not. You never think it's going to change everything. It's just, oh, yeah, it's cool. I hope people use it. But, yeah, changing everything. I mean, it's the reason why I started doing front-end work as well is because React came out. Before React, I was like, oh, no, this is too messy. I prefer my, you know, backend code that I can organize however I want. And I love immutability and functional programming and all this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And then suddenly React comes out. I'm like, wow, okay, cool. So that sounds a bit more sane. I, I want to use it. That's actually my favorite thing of React. Yeah. So I, I have this theory that, um, and this is, you know, I, I sort of like had to educate myself about computer science um, after the fact. And one of the things that I learned was this, weird relationship between the functional programming world that dates back to, you know, Alfonso Church and, mm -hmm. you know, Lambda Calculus. And, it, and it's super pure and all the academics love it. And everyone that I talk to who goes to like a really good engineering school tells me how all of their homework was done in, you know, one of the various functional programming languages, which is kind of crazy to me because it wasn't really popular to use a functional programming language to build real stuff until relatively recently, like maybe the last 10 years, probably yeah. actually even less than that. Yeah. And, uh, and everybody else who either teaches themselves to program or... Or, or learns to program because explicitly they want to go build something. You know, they learn C++ or they learn Python or Ruby or they learn JavaScript. And it's an extremely different kind of language. 
And the domains of, of problems that people are solving in those two spaces are so different. Functional programming, you know, kind of it, it started to creep out of academia and build very backendy kind of thing, databases and, you know, some some kind of interesting service stuff or like proving systems. Compilers as uh, well. They're yeah, uh, compiler, <laughs> compiler, functional programming and compilers to go hand in hand. They're yeah. almost perfect for each other. Uh, which is actually really funny, considering that most of those compilers actually compile C, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, and the the other kind of languages. Uh, but then uh, you know, everyone who's actually making applications that people interact with uh, and stuff that has to deal with user events and time and state and all this messy stuff, hmm. functional programming never felt like the right fit, and so they ended up using JavaScript and all, all the variants of Java and C that. Um, we all have to use. But it, it seems like it's an accident of history. Um, and as I was learning more about functional programming, I, I really appreciated it for its for its purity and a lot of the ideas. And, and you know, that was sort of the original inspiration for Immutable JS in a lot of ways. Just looking at, I was learning Clojure and I saw these data structures. So like, these are amazing. Like, why have I not encountered these before learning Clojure? Hmm. Why, why are these not everywhere? Um, and I was really surprised to find that there was like no JavaScript library that implemented them. Um, so I decided to just go build it. Uh, but one of my favorite things about React is that it, it actually brought these two communities together and specifically the Clojure community. But I think functional programming or maybe even just like non-JavaScript programming in general, it, it sort of started to connect the dots. So people who were playing in, in Clojure and having a ton of fun, but really kind of limited outside of user-facing applications, saw React and were like, wait a minute, I, I, I can see how to align this with functional programming in a way that makes sense. And that ended up being really mutually beneficial. Both the React team learning a ton about how the functional programming ideas could actually help clarify what React was. And that's, you know, the, the later versions of, of React got better and better because of that. But also allowing the functional programming community to have a better control over product development, front-end development in general um, is, is awesome. So I think we've, we've gotten to help take those two lines of computer science history and smush them together a little bit. That That's a thing that I'm sort of most excited about from having watched React grow up. Yeah, that's it's quite funny that you call it a, an accident of history. And I think it's totally right because the reasons why functional programming was supposed to get popular was, you know, multi-core architectures and server farms with like, you know, 64 cores and you need to use all those cores. So you need concurrency mm -hmm. and basically you need functional programming for that. But actually it turned out to be a great fit for front-end. And I think the reason, you know, I'm no expert in front-end definitely, but I think one of the reasons is there wasn't a clear story of, you know, how do you build maintainable user interfaces? How do you do it? And there wasn't a clear answer. Like everyone had their own kind of technique and a lot of things to me, they felt very messy. Like all these events everywhere, event listeners, and you have to unsubscribe. Everything's and, mutable. Yeah. Yeah. MVC. Yeah. All this stuff wasn't convincing, at least from my point of view. And when that story came out, you know, I thought, okay, now there's a way. Now I can do it. Yeah, I had that same feeling. Even though I didn't come from the functional programming background, I just it always felt wrong. It felt messy. Yeah. Every MV, I never I never met an MVC framework I didn't like. Um actually now that you mentioned immutability and immutable JS, I wonder how do you see that in terms of adoption and and mindset of the community. I think it's definitely helped a lot that, you know, the I think the front end community has come 
together with the functional programming community much more than it used to. But I wonder if you think, you know, people are still slow in adopting immutability or I would say embracing actually, because when you start using persistent data structures, you realize, oh my God, how can I not use them? Yeah. So originally Immutable.js had no goals at all. It was truly a side project of mine because I was interested in the data structures when I found them with Clojure. I wanted to better understand how they worked. And like I do with everything else, I take things apart and put them back together again to figure out how they work. That's just how I learn. So I was looking at the Clojure source code, and I was new to Clojure, so I was kind of reading it and trying to make my best understanding of it, but there was a lot of like really heavy Lisp-isms going on there. <laughs> uh, and so I figured a, a good way to, to learn this would be to sort of build it from first principles from scratch in JavaScript, um, just because that was a language that I understood really well. And the early version of it was was really limited, but I started showing it to people and a, a bunch of people got really excited about it. They're like, this is actually, like I would use this if you if you published this. Hmm. And so, you know, I was like, all right, you know, I don't know what else I'm going to do with this now that I'm done with it. So I might as well put it on GitHub. Um, and then it lined up with a React conference. So, um, you know, I, I wanted to talk at the React conference and I was trying to think about a, a talk topic. And, you know, there's people really excited about this idea of the Flux architecture. And, and Flux was about, you know, single direction data flow and, hmm. and treating values immutably and and you know, it got me thinking about both the the ideas behind closure and other functional programming environments, where you know mutability is like a thing to control and get out of the way, and you know you you use mutability in little bits and pieces when you have to, mm. um, and it's like you opt into mutability, where immutability is the default. And I was like, why is it why is it the opposite? in all the other programming languages. And in, in fact, now that I, I thought more about it, not only is it kind of almost accidentally the opposite, like that hurts us when mutability is the default and immutability is like a thing you have to think really hard about, then you end up designing these systems that are really fragile. You know, a lot of what Flux was doing was trying to shield values from mutability. And a lot of the JavaScript frameworks before it, like Backbone and things like that, were about trying to capture the mutation events and like figure out how to leverage mutability and then send events everywhere. And that just seemed crazy. Like, and that, you know, we're facing performance issues. And I just thought that that can't be the answer. So I I gave this talk at a at a React Conf in was that 2014 or 15 about immutability. And Immutable.js, I, I sort of pitched as, you know, here's a JavaScript implementation of this idea. And I really didn't pitch it as, you know, you should go use this library. I pitched it as, you should think about your data immutably. And here's some tools for doing that. Uh, and then I just saw the, the uptake of that library explode. Wow. Uh, and I, I really didn't anticipate just how much usage. Like, it's still one of the most, like, 100 most popular repos on, on GitHub. Um, despite it being a very stable project, you know, it, it only gets little bits and pieces of maintenance, mostly because it's done, right? Like how much, how much new stuff do you need to add to yeah, exactly. new data structures? Unless there's new, new theory developed around it. I mean, there's not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so really, you know, after the fact, I, I, I realized there was kind of 
two things that that library was accomplishing in the community. One was it was helping more people understand this really interesting set of data structures, the persistent immutable data structures. Uh, just from like, a, I, you know, I wanted people to learn about them in the same way that I learned about them, was excited about. Uh, and then the second was it, it was helping people understand how to think about their data immutably and how to how to build systems where, you know, you, you couldn't just easily fall back on mutation um, if you wanted to cheat because the, you know, the library wouldn't let you. Um, and And that was really useful for people. But then as people sort of bought into it, they're like, okay, yeah, we, we agree. Immutability is the right way to go. Let's limit mutation. Uh, then I saw all these other libraries pop up. And so there's, you know, simple immutable and a, and a bunch of others like that. Um, and then they would say, oh, you know, immutable.js is whatever, 16 kilobytes. And uh, my library is 800 bytes. So use this one instead. Yeah. It's like, you don't need a library, right? You don't need any library to just treat your data immutably. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that, that's still, I think that's still the thing that I, uh, I find the most confusion over is uh, people think like, you know, why, why do I need such complicated library to do immutable data in my application? It's like, oh, you really don't, <laughs> you, know, you really don't, um, especially if your data is relatively simple, you just use the built-in stuff and, you know, you, you treat it immutably from, from the get-go. Uh, but as soon as you have, you know, a hundred or more things in a list, then you will appreciate the uh, performance qualities of a persistent immutable data structure. Um, but it's been, I think that's, that second part is what has been the most beneficial of having launched Immutable.js is, you know, just exposing people to the pattern. And even if they don't end up using the library, um, that's totally fine. In fact, that's probably better because it's fewer people that I have to make sure are, you know, well, well covered by, uh, uh, by the library's needs. Um, and in fact, it, it makes sense that there'd be a whole plethora of tools out there that help you think about your data immutably. That's, that's a really good thing. I don't want that one library to serve all purposes for, for immutability. But uh, I'm really happy for, with the role that it played in helping people understand about the, just the concept and how to how to leverage it effectively. Yeah, I think the effect it had on people's minds is, is even more important than on people's code bases, right? Yeah. Now there's only not one default. There's many ways to think about it and these are increasingly popular, I hope. I hope so too. Um, one of the things that I that I really like about uh, Clojure's persistent data structures that I kind of missed in JavaScript is what I call this algebra, this language to talk about data structures, you know, assoge, dissoge, and conj, and all these operations that work on different data structures. And you just learn one language and then suddenly you can talk to any data structure and it does pretty much what you expect. And there's a slightly steep learning curve and then all the programs you build are just with this language. So I think when I started using Immutable.js, it was really familiar to me. One thing I miss is, oh, the integration with a language was like, oh, what about this structuring? What about all these things? And I realized, oh, it's a, I feel it's a second class citizen yeah. because it's a library and you know, JavaScript is JavaScript and there's this kind of friction. When you said Immutable.js is becoming so stable and so many people use it, I realized this is the precursor to becoming a, a feature of a... It's a language feature. It's not a library. It should be a language feature. But I don't know how feasible that is to actually... Well, yeah, I was... I I participated in the TC39 committee for for a while, hmm. um, about eighteen months. And immutability in general, like immutable primitives was something that we talked about, and even just basic low level ways that would allow you to interact with arbitrary data structures. It didn't necessarily have to be immutable, but just any kind of data structure um, came up. And it's really hard, you know. There's just the 
JavaScript is a really tricky language to continue to evolve just because it's the most popular language and it's used for so many different things. And, you know, you can't break anything going back and the web is built on it. And uh, I wasn't able to make a lot of traction there. But, um, you know, I I wouldn't give up hope. I think there's a lot still a lot of potential um, to do interesting things in the language itself. Um, I, I would still love to see destructuring. And in fact, I think there's array destructuring because that array destructuring courses to an iteratable first mm. and then um, pulls them out of the iterator, I believe. So I think array destructuring works, but object destructuring does not because that looks for properties and there's no way to sort of override that behavior. A JavaScript object is a very specific thing, right? Like yeah, it's a very specific own. thing. And, and that's, I think, a little bit of a bummer in terms of how the language has evolved over over time. And, and it's not just, you know, Immutable.js has, has popular collections that are, you know, it's a, a third party, it's a library. Um, but there are the map and set data structures that are part of the language. You know, they're in the, the JavaScript specification. Hmm. And those suffer from the same interoperability problems um, that Immutable.js suffers from. So I, I really don't see that this is just uh, how does Immutable.js and other libraries like it interact with the language, but really how does other data structures that are core to the language feel at home? Yeah. Uh, and I think if, if, if that problem can be solved, then perhaps in the coming years, um, we'll actually provide more primitive data structures to the language itself, maybe up to and including immutable ones. Yeah, that's that's very true. If it's not only your problem, it's if it's JavaScript's problem in itself, then there's a chance that it's going to get fixed or at least like improved. I hope so. So, um, of course, it, it wouldn't be an interview to Lee Byron if we wouldn't talk about GraphQL, which is the other side of the story, I guess, the, yeah. where front-end meets the back-end. So, yeah, um, basically, GraphQL is an incredible piece of software. I've, I've used it, and it changed the way I think about APIs, and I think it's, that's true for a lot of people. And I wonder how, how it even started. Like, um, the most interesting thing about GraphQL is, you know, it's one of the things I'm most proud of, and it came from one of my biggest mistakes hmm. uh, because I, before working on GraphQL, um, I, I mentioned before that, you know, I was working on mobile and I was doing, I had an, a team that was working on front end engineering for mobile. Um, and we started with that, the mobile website. That was the very first project that we took on as a team is to build a much higher quality mobile website. And, um, you know, we, I was really proud of what we built. Um, even to this day, the, you know, mobile Facebook website um, uses the exact same technology that I put in place um, with that team. You know, was that like eight years ago? So, you know, it stood this test of time. Um, and at the time, we thought that the mobile browsers were only going to get better. And this is the early days of the smartphones. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I remember when Steve Jobs got up on stage and held up the iPhone and and talked about it as an internet communication device, and that if you wanted to build an experience for that, all you had to do was build a website. And I was like, that's great. I got this. I know how to do that. Oh, that's changed quite a lot. <laughs> oh, it definitely has. <laughs> um, and when Android, when Google acquired Android, I had the same hopes for that, because like, Google was a web company. So I thought, well, of course, you know, the Chrome browser was was still pretty new, and they had just acquired Android. And I was like, well, these are two things that definitely go together. Like, they're going to compete on who's got the best 
browser for mobile devices because you know all these companies had been competing for the best desktop browser. I, that's what I thought was going to happen. So when it came time to really replace our our aging, we did have iOS and Android uh, mobile apps, but they were they were really old. They were for sort of the first generation of of the platforms, and they had extremely limited feature set. And it was back to you know, I was mentioning before this idea of it being a secondary screen where you'd leave your your desktop computer and then you'd have your phone as like a temporary holdover. And when we when it came time to really expand the feature set, we had just built this mobile website, and so we decided that uh, the right thing to do was to build a wrapper around that mobile website. So we had a an iOS app and an Android app that were each sort of glorified web browsers. And they added a couple native features on top. You know, they ing- integrated the camera. Hmm. Um, they integrated GPS for, you know, location check-ins um, and a couple other features like that, you know, that you couldn't just get out of regular browser. Um, and they ha- had some nice integration into the, you know, the navigation paradigms that you would expect from a native app. Um, but otherwise, it was, it was all the mobile website. And, and that worked well for a little bit until we started trying to build more sophisticated features with, you know, more fine-grained gestures and animations. Hmm. And at the same time, the web browser technology on mobile just stagnated. You know, the desktop browsers were innovating. W3C was coming out with all kinds of really interesting new specs. What WG was founded and they were coming out with interesting stuff as well that the desktop browsers were all picking up. And the mobile browsers just didn't get any of it. And at the same time, you know, every year there would be more and more super interesting native integrations and, and, you know, app toolkits that we couldn't take advantage of. So at some point, you know, we realized that we just made a huge mistake. And I think, you know, one of the things I regret was not realizing that even sooner uh, because we ended up really having to play catch up. Um, And so sort of around the beginning of 2012, we decided that we had to start over and we decided that we would we would try this on iOS first, and we would build a, a brand new app that uh, you know we couldn't rebuild the entirety of Facebook only in, in a couple months. That that wasn't going to happen. Uh, but we could at least build Newsfeed. So we were going to build because that was you know the very first thing when you opened the app was Newsfeed. Yeah. Um, so we were going to build a a super high quality version of Newsfeed, all native, and everything else would just continue to be the web for now. And we, we, you know, one feature at a time converted over to native. So we had sort of the skunk works team working on this and they got pretty far. Um, and at some point, you know, they were like, all right, we think we're almost done. Let's take a look at this. And it, you know, scrolled really smooth, great gestures and animations. It looked really sharp. Uh, but I noticed that it was missing a bunch of newsfeed stories. I looked at it and I compared it to me being logged in on my, on my laptop and there's definitely missing stuff. And they're like, well, you know, we're using everything from the API. And then it hit me. I was like, wait, what API? Like the Newsfeed API. I was like, I don't know. I've been working here for years and I've never heard of a Newsfeed API. Hmm. And then we dug into it and we realized that years ago, we had developed a Newsfeed API as an experiment for some third-party API integration. And then subsequently never touched it again. And somehow it still worked. Interesting. But it was missing. However, yeah, yeah, it was like it was like a three-year-old version of Newsfeed that was just missing (laughs) any kind of new story type. So it had like status updates and it had photos. Mm. And that was it. 
So if it was, uh, you know, so-and-so commented on this story or so-and-so shared so-and-so's post, like any kind of new kind of entry into newsfeed that we developed in the, in the last couple of years uh, just wasn't there. So we're like, uh, okay, well, let's just go fix it. But then as we did that, we realized that a lot of these new kinds of newsfeed stories were inherently recursive. You know, it, mm-hmm. it was just like fundamentally different from if you had to think about what an API for, say, Twitter would look like. It's not that complicated, right? You've got who wrote the post. You have some text. That text might contain some links in it. And then maybe there's an attachment. And that attachment's uh, you know, a photo or a video or a link. Done. Hmm. But with, with Facebook's newsfeed, there was... Um, aggregated stories where three of your friends are talking about this news or talking about this news article. And then you'd have this nested thing where within it, there was then three more newsfeed stories. And you'd have so, you know, Sheryl Sandberg shared Mark Zuckerberg's post. And so there, there was a nested story. Mm. And then each of those could sort of nest arbitrarily. So we had this sort of recursive nature where a newsfeed story could contain a newsfeed story, which could contain a newsfeed story, which could contain a photo, which had a reference to something else. And it, it, it had this very, you know, really, really complicated set of things. Mm. And so we first sort of just did this exercise with um, the newsfeed designers where we actually sort of defined whatever all of these things were and, and came up with like a, a, a mental model, you know, an actual data model of, of what this thing was. Um, and around the same time, um, you know, one of the other GraphQL co-creators, Nick Schrock, was working on a similar problem for uh, a different team of uh, trying to figure out how to take things that we had done previously only on the server and expose it through an API. And so he had been playing with some ideas uh, and actually had a prototype up that he called Supergraph that took sort of the best ideas of what we had been doing on our server-side code base and almost like a syntactical verbatim ex- you know, what would it look like if your, if your API was like literally writing PHP code, but very, very simplified um, is kind of what the super graph looked like. And I thought that was super fascinating. You know, it, was, it solved a lot of the problems that I was working on on this mobile newsfeed. Um, and then one of our, our the people working on this uh, mobile app project um, was just, you know, sort of friends with both of us and, and clicked us together. Um, and then from there, we, you know, we, we need a newsfeed expert. And that, that was Dan Schaefer, who's the, the third co-creator. Um, he was sort of the person who knew the most about newsfeed and newsfeed's backend and how newsfeed was put together. Uh, and so the three of us decided to take Nick's prototype and uh, my data model of newsfeed and Dan's knowledge of how to actually get all this stuff done and, and, and go build something. So, you know, a lot of it was just like from this atmosphere of like, oh, crap, like we really, we really messed up mobile and we got to fix it. <laughs> Um, and you know, it, it was really an experiment. Like it was kind of bold. And in fact, in retrospect, it's kind of nuts that, uh, that our, our managers and directors let us go do this. Cause if you think about it, 2012, Facebook was filing for an IPO. Um, I, I remember Mark's, uh, he, he had like a, a public, uh, filing before the, with, before Facebook went public where he listed out sort of all the risks to the business. And one of them was that we saw this big shift to mobile and we hadn't figured it out yet. And here we were <laughs> trying to figure it out. Meanwhile, we were going on this crazy rat hole, uh, inventing a brand new API technology. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they let us do it. You know, they let us have like a couple of months to, to see what this thing would be. Uh, but I think the reason they let us do it is 
uh, first, you know, initially they, they trusted us that we weren't totally crazy. And after a couple of weeks, we had something mostly working, you know, like a very prototypal version of uh, a prototype version of GraphQL. Uh, and we showed it to the iOS team that was working on this new app and they got really excited. Um, and so that's when we knew we were onto something and they, they really liked working with it. They found ways to connect it to the tools that they were working on. It was sort of the early indication of uh, GraphQL as a platform for building tools sort of really in the early days came to, came to fruition. Um, and then once the newsfeed had shipped and it was successful and it had very good performance and it did everything it wanted to do, and we were moving on to the next pieces of the application to, to move to native. So we looked at the user profiles and we looked at photos as the next two things. Uh, and both of those team, two teams came to us and were like, hey, the newsfeed team has this awesome API on GraphQL. Can we expand it from the newsfeed API to also include user profiles and photos? We're like, uh, yeah, I, I think we can do that. Uh, and so then we, that was sort of the moment where we went from this sort of skunk works crew of people who were all on loan for whatever our various teams were to put this thing together to like actually a GraphQL team wow. at Facebook. And then we spent the next year or two sort of talking to team by team and helping them, um, you know, include their product into the Facebook's GraphQL schema. And then, uh, you know, actually after that, there was, there's plenty of interesting stuff happening with GraphQL, but I actually went to do other stuff. I, I worked on other projects at Facebook for a couple of years and then came back to it in 2015 when the Relay team decided that they wanted to open source Relay. They had been talking to people at conferences and, you know, React had been open sourced for a bit over a year at that point, And they had seen the success of React open sourcing. People were excited about Relay um, and they wanted to open source it. And they realized that open sourcing Relay just wouldn't really make sense without at least talking about GraphQL, if not open sourcing it in some fashion. Um, so that excited me because... You know, I was excited about open source. Hmm. Um, so I came back to the GraphQL team to come up with a plan for what open sourcing would look like, which is uh, both sparked a sort of a, an aggressive redesign effort there. The rest of the team really just wanted to take what we had and figure out the fastest path to open source it. Um, and I thought, you know, we had accrued a lot of stuff over the years that uh, we were only so proud of. And this was, if we were ever going to change GraphQL, this would be our opportunity because it would sure would be a lot harder once uh, people in the community had their hands on it. And uh, that, that turned out to be probably a smart thing to do. Um, and we spent a little bit of time writing the GraphQL specification with this bet that if we just took our PHP code base, put it up on GitHub, people would either ignore us or laugh at us. And uh, we weren't really excited about either of those two outcomes. Um, and we wanted to make sure that you know the Ruby community and the Python community and the Java community uh, could all sort of look at this thing in equal light and um, and that's why we decided to talk about it as a specification and then talk about the JavaScript implementation that we did as sort of a, a tooling base and a reference implementation, sort of a, a pairing document to the, the spec itself. Uh, and that was a lot of fun, you know, going through the design exercise, writing the spec, the whole early open source effort. Yeah, definitely like a highlight in my career so far. I think that was a really smart move because um, it's kind of the opposite of what happens with most pieces of software, especially coming from the industry, right? It's like, I wrote this, it works. Here it is. I don't have more time to explain. You know, <laughs> right. so then I mean that would be good enough, right? But the problem is then you know your your implementation becomes the specification, and you know it's a mess. Yeah, that was something that I was really nervous about because um, we talked early on about how 
we expected if we had released the PHP version that we would at, at least expect it to be ported into other languages. And I was really terrified about inaccurate ports, right? Mm. And, and not that someone porting it would do a bad job. I was I was confident that there are plenty of really smart engineers out there that would do a great job porting it. I was worried that there was just internal ambiguity that that there was places, you know, like what if there was a bug? Exactly. Like if there was a bug in our code, then that that bug would get ported to every other language <laughs> in every implementation. Uh, and that was definitely true. You know, there I think the first year of it being an open source project was just people pointing to things in the JavaScript implementation that, you know, I wrote with the rest of the team and saying, hey, this thing here doesn't do what the spec says. And I go, oh, crap, you're right. <laughs> There's a bug. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's a good thing. Because you write the spec and you're like, oh, this is how it should work. And then you implement it and you use it and it works. And it's all edge cases and corner cases. But that's, a, you know, the, those are important. People run into those. Uh, and we fix them. Or people would say, oh, this spec is actually, you know, it's under specifying some case, you know, if this scenario happens, the spec doesn't, isn't clear enough about what happens. Uh, but here's what happens in the actual JavaScript code base. Um, is that the right thing? And we'd look at it and sometimes it would be the right thing. And we would, you know, find a way to clarify that in the spec, but sometimes we'd be like, actually, that doesn't make sense. So we should talk about what the right thing is and then make sure that we fix it everywhere. That kind of continues to this day. At this point, I think we've got a pretty good handle and the, the spec is pretty robust and the reference implementation is, uh, I would say very, very close to bug free. At least bugs are pretty rare. Um, but that's still, you know, the, the whole uh, process of thinking about new scenarios and new edge cases. And, and what about this other weird scenario? What's the right thing to happen? Uh, we still do that. You know, we, there's a, a whole group of us that meet every sort of month or two and, and talk about those things and figure out new ways for GraphQL to evolve. So it lives on. So how does, uh, how does this all connect with the foundation? Is it a, a way to take it out of the industry, let's say, and, and involve the wider community? Yeah, that's that's a the promise of the foundation, and it's still early. You know, the foundation is not a real thing yet, so we've mm. we're working on it. Um, and the the next step is, um, you know, we're working on all of the the nitty gritties, the governance details, and you know, who's responsible for what, and how how that will all work out. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I'm excited about it because I think it will do for GraphQL what a lot of these other open foundations have done for other projects, which is, um, you know, create a neutral ground for big companies to play together, which hmm. there's already a bunch of vendors in the GraphQL space building really interesting technologies. But um, there's also really big companies in there, too. Uh, AWS on, on Amazon has... GraphQL tools and, um, you know, GraphQL is being used at a bunch of really big companies. And I think it's important that all those companies feel like they can contribute, um, both from, you know, the engineers and their legal department. Uh, you know, unfortunately that's a huge part of open source is the legal side of open source. Yeah. Uh, and that's a lot of what the foundation helps us do. Um, the other thing is that it'll help us sort of organize things that are traditionally difficult to organize from within an organization that's not goal-driven towards that particular technology. So Facebook has been a great place to build new projects that become open source projects. I wouldn't necessarily say it's the best place for open source projects to be maintained. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and that kind of makes sense, right? Like if you're I was an engineer at Facebook. I was a you know I worked at Facebook for a long time, 
And uh, we were always charged with looking for the thing that would let you have the most impact. And maintaining an open source project very rarely fits that bill. I think maintaining React has fit that bill. That is a very impactful thing to do. And maintaining GraphQL is also pretty close to that line. But when you get into the long tail of you know, writing really high quality developer documentation or helping organize an event hmm. um, or meetups, who should be responsible for that? And is that really the most important thing that they can be doing as a employee of Facebook or yeah, exactly. you know, as an employee of any company out there that's helping uh, work on Facebook or sorry, work on GraphQL? Uh, and, and that's really a problem that I think the foundation can help us solve. It can create a space for people who, who want that to be the thing that they do. Um, and I'm hoping that it can also help us create a, a funding model that will allow people who use GraphQL or are fans of GraphQL to financially support it and then use those funds to help have higher quality events and meetups, to help have higher quality documentation, um, to have you know better website, just all the stuff that's around the project itself. Um, just because, you know, if you look at what's happening in GraphQL, there's not a, it's not like an a, aggressively expanding set of technologies, right? Like the work isn't, we just need a bunch of really smart engineers to go solve these hard engineering problems. That That's actually the least of the, of the things we need to go do. They're yeah. all around community maintenance and, um, and, you know, making sure that the project is healthy. And that I think can... I'm excited that the foundation will create a space where we'll have a lot more energy for doing that. I think that's a good idea because there's an there's a counter example also coming from Facebook. I remember React is such a good piece of software, such a good idea. But I realized I, I had some colleagues at a company that was acquired by Microsoft and they told me it's such a bummer. We cannot use React because our legal department doesn't let us. They say no because, you know, this clause. And I'm like, what? Like, are you not using React? Are you Are you nuts? They're like, we can't. That's it. Yeah. And if um, I think if Facebook would have relinquished control of React and kind of released it to the community in, in the same way, uh, it would have been better for, for adoption. And, you know. Yeah. And luckily, you know, Facebook wants these open source projects to survive. And so the, the actual legal pieces of, of those have evolved a lot over the years as we've both learned ourselves, um, as we've gotten feedback from all the people in those communities. Uh, you know, we, we tried to do what's best for those projects. And uh, yeah, I, I'm certainly not a lawyer, but now I would say that I know way more about open source law than I ever thought that I would <laughs> <laughs> from having gone through these things, both on for React and for GraphQL have seen their fair share of uh, blowups around the legality of space. All luckily theoretical blowups that we have eventually figured out how to fix rather than actual blowups where people... Uh, get in trouble with each other. So I'd much rather solve theoretical problems that aren't ever real problems uh, in the legal space. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So uh, after this amazing adventure at Facebook, uh, you decided to to join Robinhood. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about you know what what made you do the change? Uh, what challenges were you looking for, and in how it is working there actually? Yeah, moving to Robinhood has been a lot of fun. You know, I was at Facebook for 10 years, wow. which in Silicon Valley is, uh, it, at least, is a really long time to be at one company. Yeah. And uh, I think part of the reason why I was able to stay there for such a long time is, you know, I really grew in my career as Facebook grew as a company. And really looking back on it, it's kind of like I worked at many different companies along the way, just because 
Facebook went through so many phases as a company. After 10 years, I, I realized that I really missed that early phase when the company was still quite small. Hmm. There were only so many projects that we were working on. And there was the sense that you know, everyone at the company was working on the same thing at the same time. Yeah, um, There's something really electric about that, that I hadn't felt in a long time. And, you know, a, a lot of what propelled me through the last couple of years was GraphQL and a lot, of, a lot of the work that went on with GraphQL and React and the whole open source ecosystem around that, including Immutable.js and a bunch of other projects. And uh, I realized that, you know, moving on from Facebook wouldn't mean moving on from those projects. And I'm still uh, active in a lot of those projects. But I, I really wanted to work on a newer project, a newer product where I got to have more hands-on time with the product itself. I realized that the last time that I really had made some decision that had a serious impact on the product was back to the origins of GraphQL, back when we were sort of redefining what newsfeed on mobile was. Um, and I really missed that. that. That had been a long time. So I, I was looking around at various companies that were, you know, on the maybe 100 to 200 people scale. And um, I talked to a bunch of them. And Robinhood kind of stood out for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that I'm, I'm just really, I'd been interested in, in fintech for a while. Um, I'm kind of one of those weirdos who has a spreadsheet for everything. And, uh, and you know, going back to, you know, teaching myself things, I, I was teaching myself to invest and, you know, doing a bad job at it. I, I lose money whenever I try to trade things, but I, I was really fascinated by it. And then one of the things that always bugged me was that every time I would, you know, test something out and do a trade, I'd have to pay five bucks to place the trade and play five bucks to sell the trade. And, um, when Robinhood is making placing trades free. I thought that was really smart. And then I started using it. I was like, this is actually a really awesome product. Like the details are right. Like this is a product company who happens to also be a fintech company. Hmm. Uh, and when I started talking to them and there's actually a couple of people there who um, had been at Facebook before and, you know, one of them um, had spent a lot of time on newsfeed. And so I, I actually kind of kept up with him over the, over the years. And, um, and he invited me to, to come talk to folks there. And I realized not only were they a product company, not only were they working on the financial space that I was interested in, but they were very mission-driven. Um, you know, I talked to their founders and they talked about how their previous company was much closer to Wall Street and high-speed trading. And they got kind of, uh, you know, disenlightened with that. Um, and this was around you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, the whole financial crash and, um, you know, the 99% rallies. Yeah. And that really informed the, the early mission of Robinhood um, to take these things that were really ways to, to help people save, you know, lift people up um, and, and help democratize them. And all of the decisions that they had made up until that point were in service of that mission. And, and that was really exciting to me. You know, a lot of the other companies I had talked to, they had great products, but they were building that product because they had started with a good product. They liked that product. People liked that product and they wanted to make a better version of that product. Uh, and that's well and good. But, um, you know, I, I think it's really exciting when you're trying to accomplish something big. And the thing that you have is feels like one step on a thousand step journey. Uh, and, and that certainly felt 
like the case at, at Robinhood where, you know, democratizing access to the financial system is a, is a worthy goal. It's a mission that I'm excited about. Um, and the product that we have now is definitely not all the way there. There's a lot more that we have to do. Uh, and so that was really exciting. That, that to me was the sense that I had had the opportunity to have a lot of impact on product. So yeah, I'd like to wrap up with the three questions that we ask um, our guests, um, because we've been talking a lot about really interesting tech stuff. And I would like to know a little bit more about, you know, your human side. I, I assume you like food. Who doesn't? Do you have a favorite dish? Oh, man. Uh, I think nothing can beat a really good taco. What kind of taco, though? Uh, I like beef tongue tacos. I, any kind of like the, the stuff that you would look at and think, I don't know if I want to eat that, uh, you almost always do. They're, they're the best tacos. Yeah. But I love all kinds of food and you know, I, I love to cook. Um, I cook a lot for, for my family and, and it's a, t a lot of fun. I'm always making some kind of pasta or, or fish or, or something. Um, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, again, you're loving to make things. Food is one of those things where you get to make something and you get to make a different thing every day. And, uh, you know, you can share it with the people you love. So, yeah, I think it's quite a special thing to cook. Um, you make something and your users actually enjoy it, especially, you know, when something is made with love, it tastes even better. Yeah, exactly. But actually it's, it's, it's hard to cook in San Francisco, I think, because the food is absolutely great. When I went there, I, I was blown away by how much food, different food you can get. And it's all amazing. All the food is amazing. But uh, the secret for why the food is so good is because the produce is so good. And if the produce is good, that means that you can cook great stuff. Yeah, it makes so, sense. Um, I'm always finding interesting produce and, and trying to find fun things to make with it. Um, so, yeah, I would like also to know about what you consider the most uh, thrilling experience of your life, uh, if you had to choose one. Well, I, earlier this year, I went on a, a hiking trip with my, uh, I have two brothers, uh, my brothers and my dad hmm. went on this hiking trip and my dad was super excited. He planned it for us and it was like a three day hiking trip. And he said the first trip or the first day, you know, we're, I'm going to wear you guys out. Uh, but the, don't worry after that, the next two days will be relatively easy. And we, you know, hiked over waterfalls and we went like 10 miles. So a lo really long hike. And it's, We were definitely kind of tired at the end of the day. Um, but the next day, hmm. we went um, all the way from the base of the valley where we were hiking up to the, uh, the peak of one of the mountains. And it was like a 2,000-foot elevation change and like 16-mile hike. And uh, my brother sprained his ankle on the way, and we had to help him down or you know, had his arm around us on the way down. So we, wow. We, it was one of those things where you realize you're sort of in over your head at the end of the day and uh, the sun had set before we were, you know, back to our, our camp. And uh, so that was, I, you know, every once in a while you have to have a good adventure where you're just slightly out of control. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're not quite sure what's going to happen. I think, you know, you got, you got to have some of those experiences in life. Definitely. I think that's uh, exactly what people mean when they say step out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Like this is slightly dangerous. Like it's, it's not, maybe not life threatening, but definitely out of most people's comfort zones. It's like, oh, yeah. what are we going to do? It's sunset. Maybe we, we get lost. Maybe someone else's, uh, someone else sprains their ankle. A good mm -hmm. reminder that you're still alive. And finally, um, if you have a book or, or a couple of books that you'd like to recommend to our listeners. So one of my favorite books of all time is the design of everyday things. I think I've heard of that book. Yeah, it's a 
It's by Donald Norman. It's a super popular book. I think it's been reissued like three times at this point. Mm. Don't get the audiobook. Uh, just buy the paperback. You probably find one for five bucks. But it's it's a great. It's it, it was required reading for us in college hmm. uh, as part of my design program, and it, it's one of those books that I come back to and and reread. And it's it's about the how everyday things, things that you wouldn't think about as having been designed by a designer, hmm. but like have all the qualities of like a well-designed object and why they work the way they do and the psychology behind them and what happens when we get them wrong. And I think probably the most famous chapter in the book is about doors. Uh, and it's been, it's been parodied and referenced uh, a thousand times over about how the panel on a door that you push versus the bar that you grab hmm. um, send signals to you about which doors you push and which doors you pull. Hmm. And, a, and a poorly designed door is a door that mixes those two things up where it has like a bar that looks like you should be able to pull it. Like lots of fancy modern buildings have these, you know, vertical bars on both sides of the door, yeah. but the door pushes in one way and pulls in the other. And they inevitably have to put a big sign right at eye level in huge font that says pull. And still, if you watch that door, you'll watch people walk up to it, see the word pull in their face and then push, right? Or vice versa. Oh. Uh, Cause it's a, it's poorly designed. So it's, he has like an entire chapter. That's basically a chapter long rant about doors. Oh my God. I think I just had a flashback. Like, I think I've, I've been there basically with these kind of doors. And the first <laughs> thought that comes to mind is like, oh my God, I'm stupid. Like, you know, but it's, it's not only about yourself. It's about the design, what's it, what it's telling you, but you don't know, right? Yeah. Uh, these are, I think people call these Norman doors after the, the author of, of the book is Paul Norman. So hmm. now whenever you encounter a door that tells you, it, you know, it has the word push or pull, but your first instinct is to do the opposite. And then it's that door that you, every time you encounter it, you, you get it wrong. That's a Norman door. Norman door. Um, but the, the book is great. It's full of little examples like that. And it'll just make you think about all the things that you take for granted uh, and whether, you know, you find them frustrating. It'll give you a better idea of why they're frustrating. Or if you never really thought about it, but it kind of works every time, it'll give you an appreciation for why it works so well. Um, and it, it's, I think it's just like a good thing to have in your mind is anyone who builds stuff that other people have to interact with, whether that's digital websites or apps or whether it's physical. Um, it's a, it's a great foundation of, of understanding those things. That's, that's really interesting. These kind of books, I think should be required for anyone who's making things because we're all designing software as well. And yeah, we, we tend to think, um, of it as a different thing than designing products or good software, uh, any, at least the software that's designed to be used by other people and not just used directly by the computer. Those are products, hmm. right? I, I think that's, that's one of the things I learned from, uh, watching open source projects that go well is uh, those people think about their libraries as products that are used by hmm. you know other engineers, um, and then think about all the details along the way that make a good product a good product that's beyond just you know the the product itself. Um, and so, yep, all the same rules apply. Yeah, that's that's perfect. So. Thank you so much for uh, uh, for taking the time for this interview. I know you must be busy, you know, with work and, and your family and everything. So thank you again. Yeah, my pleasure. And I'll see you in September at the conference. Absolutely. And to our listeners, I hope you've all enjoyed this episode. If you want to see Lee's keynote and many other great speakers, you can go to fullstackfest.com. Until next time, and see you all in September. September.